Please take God's word and turn with me to our scripture reading this morning, which can be found in Luke chapter 8, verses 19 through 21. Now Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, but they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. He replied, my mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, your word is truth and life. Though we're sinful people, speak that life to us. I'm a sinful man. Help me to speak truth as I proclaim it. Pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So this is going to be kind of different than a lot of our sermons in that typically we have kind of a little bit longer text and we spend the bulk of our sermon digging into that text and walking through it. But this morning you might have noticed we had a very short scripture reading as we're working through the Gospel of Luke. And the reason for that is because I want to do something different this morning, which is I want to take this text that we just read, this interaction of Jesus with his family, and I want to use it as a jumping off point kind of to talk about this bigger idea in scripture and to give us some kind of practical challenges as we live as God's people. But before any of that, I want to set the stage by stepping back from the text and talking instead about a couple of ideas from psychology and sociology about modern culture, which I promise is actually going to be a lot more interesting and relevant than some of you feel. But here's what I want you to do first. Imagine that you are in this psychology experiment, okay? You're like a college student and you've signed up, and it's really simple. You're told this is an experiment about uh, perception and your ability to determine shapes, and so you're sitting at this table with like a dozen other people, and you happen to be at the end of the table, but you see they'll just show you two lines, and they ask you, A or B, which line is longer? And they go through a couple, and a lot of them are pretty obvious. A couple are kind of close, but everyone then kind of gives their answer, and you get to like the fourth or fifth question, and it's a little close, but it seems pretty clear looking at them, yeah, B, B is definitely the longer line, but this time, the person at the, the beginning of the table says A, and then the next person says A as well, and the person after that, everyone up to you at the table says that no, A is actually the longer line, not B. Here's the question. What do you do in that moment? Do you go with what your eyes tell you is the correct answer? Or do you recognize the fact that everybody else seems to disagree with you and so change your answer to fit with them? So that is a very famous psychology experiment. It was conducted by a guy named Simon Ash back in the 1950s, and it's been replicated in various ways ever since. And the thing to know about that experiment is that Ash did it not to tell whether you can discern which line is longer, but he did it as an experiment about social conformity, which is to say that everybody else in the experiment, except for you, was not a volunteer like you, but is actually uh, an actor, a student that, that is there, and they're told what answers to give. And so they ask about a bunch of lines, and many of the lines, they all agree about the right answer, but some of the lines the students give intentionally wrong answers. And the, the, the experiment was meant to, meant to tell how, how much are you willing to change what 
you can see right in front of you is true based off of the pressures of society around you. And here's the thing. I asked you what you would do, but the problem is we all think, I think, that we're the person who would choose to say no. Like, I can tell that B is the longer line. But, the, but Simon Ash's experiment really shows that oftentimes that's not the case. What he found is that more than 70% of participants would change at least one of their answers in order to fit with what the group was saying, and that a third of them changed the majority of their answers, even though they knew that they were wrong in order to fit what the group was saying. And that makes sense to us, even though we don't like to admit that we're the sorts of people that might change our answers, because we do all know that swimming against the current is hard. Believing things that are unpopular is hard. And that is true about the length of lines, but that also at an even deeper level is true of how societies work. A society is a group of people with a similar culture and a similar set of beliefs. A group of people with a similar culture and a similar set of beliefs. And when I talk about similar beliefs, I don't just mean that they agree about everything. In fact, within a society, you can have factions that disagree about a whole bunch of stuff. But there are beliefs underneath that that they still share in common. So, for example, if you think about the United States of America, one of the key beliefs that defines our society is a belief in absolute individualism. Which is to say, if you ask the question, who should decide what someone is going to do for their career, for example? Should they decide, or should it be dictated to them by their parents or some outside group like the government? We all, right or left, regardless of what we think about all the things we disagree about, we all instinctively would say, the individual should decide. They are the one who should determine that. And that is not an instinct shared by every culture in the world. There are societies that actually would say, no, that's wrong, that the individual should instead do what society or family tell them to do. That's what I mean by the similar sets of beliefs that define our society. Or another way to say that is that the way societies work is by making us believe certain things without thinking about them. That there are things that everybody knows things that everybody does, and we don't believe them because we've rationally reflected and wrestled with them. We believe them basically for the same reason we feel that pressure to say A when everybody else does, because we look around and see everybody else believing something, and that causes us to do the same. I'm going to give you a term for that. That's what's called the majority culture, which is to say that within a society there is a majority culture which is made up of those beliefs that everybody knows. All right, why are we talking about this in a sermon? Well, let me then, let's talk a little more about society, but here's the suggestion I want to make. A lot of Christians in our world feel this sense of struggle and uncertainty. They feel like society has changed, and that's really because certain assumptions of the majority culture have shifted. That 60 years ago, what everybody knows about God, about the church being a good thing, about these basic ideas about virtues and marriage and sex, things like that, that what everybody knows was basically friendly to Christianity. That's not to say that everyone was a Christian, or even the majority of people were a Christian, but it wasn't hard at that basic level to swim against the tide. We were in the majority culture. We really, in many ways, helped shape the majority culture. 
And that is no longer the case in our world. Increasingly, we live in a society where what everybody knows does not fit comfortably with what Scripture would call us to believe about a number of issues. Have you felt what I'm talking about there? Again, this is something that I think really fits at the gut. So that's happened, and this sermon is not about how that's happened, nor is it about how to reverse it. We'll talk a little bit at the end about the fact that I think our obsession with trying to change that is a bad idea. Here's why I point that out. It's because when we were part of the majority culture, that had benefits. And the biggest benefit is that it was sort of easy to believe certain things about Christianity. But it also had some significant costs. Some of those costs had to do with the ways that we compromised in really problematic ways with other things that society wanted to believe. But one of the deeper costs is that it left us really unprepared when we had to face the fact that suddenly Christianity felt harder to believe. You see, within a society, while there's a majority culture, there are also minority cultures, groups that disagree with those beliefs. This sociologist named Peter Berger did this whole bunch of research on what he called cognitive minorities. I'm going to call them minority cultures here. But by that, he meant groups like, in, our, in, in, in the United States, you think about like conservative Jews, or Muslims, or the Amish, or certain kind of fringe political groups. You can find these groups that don't agree with all of the majority beliefs of society. And so Berger asked, what lets them do that? How are they able to maintain these different beliefs about family and the world, even though everyone around them seems to know that they're wrong? And his answer is that in order for those minority cultures to, be, to survive, they had to form communities with strong support and deep training and reflection on their beliefs. They had to form these communities with strong relational support and deep training and reflection about what they believed. That only by doing that were people able to not just feel the pressure to choose A along with everybody else, but instead they they were able to say, no, what I believe and what I believe is a part of this community is that B is true. Now that doesn't mean they don't feel that pressure, right? I think when I describe a minority culture, what everyone pictures is like a cult that's brainwashing its members. And in the first place, a minority culture is not brainwashing its members any more than the majority culture is brainwashing us. It's just a natural element of communities that kind of cause us to believe those things. But, but actually, people in minority cultures, Berger kind of talks about this, and this has been my experience, they often have the best insight into the assumptions of the majority culture and are able to most rationally reflect on them because they do feel that pressure from the broader culture, but they're given a kind of cross-pressure from their group enough that they're able to really wrestle with and choose what they think is true. Some of the best insights I've gotten about our culture have actually come from a few Jewish and Muslim friends I've had over the years, reflecting on what it's like to live in America. But all of that is to say, in order for a minority culture to survive, in order for a minority culture to maintain its distinctive beliefs, it has to act like that minority culture. It has to be that kind of strong community with relational support and deep reflection about what it believes. And the reason the church is struggling so much in America is because it has moved out in some ways of being the center of the majority culture, but it does not have that kind of deep community and deep reflection that it needs to survive. So that is the big idea from outside of this text, all right? Now let's zoom in on this story about Jesus. 
And I'm going to give you the key idea from this story up front, the idea we're going to talk about, which is that the church is meant to be our true family, which is another way of saying it is meant to be that kind of community that can sustain us as a minority culture. The church is meant to be our true family. First, let's look at the story. Luke chapter 8, start in verse 19. Then Jesus' mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. So a couple things about this. First of all, some of us have questions about Jesus' family. Mary, his mother, and his brothers show up. One note, because some people struggle or wonder about this. So if you grew up in certain traditions, especially Catholicism, you probably got told that these are Jesus' stepbrothers, his half-brothers, that Joseph had a prior marriage and must have had children there. That's not really anywhere said in Scripture. That's because one of the assumptions that those theological traditions make is that Mary was a virgin for her entire life, not just before she had Jesus. And so obviously these couldn't be his biological siblings. Because we're in a tradition that is not committed to that idea about Mary being a virgin her whole life, There's no kind of reason for us to hold that. Obviously, they could have been from a prior marriage, but they could just as easily, I think, have been Jesus' biological brothers and sisters. But Jesus' family comes, and they want to see him. And he's told that they're standing outside desiring to see you. So what's going on here? Well, you can read this story one of two different but related ways. One is to recognize that Jesus was actually a source of family conflict in his family. In Mark 3, we have a story that occurs before this one, where it says Jesus went home to Nazareth, and the crowd gathered so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize Jesus, for they were saying he is out of his mind. Which is to say that it could be that Jesus' mother and brothers are here to try to drag him home again. And that can be hard for us, especially because we we know by the end of the story that both Mary and at least one of Jesus' brothers come to believe in him and follow him and are actually part of the early church. But look, the thing is, if if your sibling, even if they were a great sibling, even if they were sinless in the way that Jesus was, they're still your brother that you grew up with, right? And that you saw, like, fall on his face as a toddler and have all of the normal struggles of childhood. If your sibling was announcing that they were God's Messiah, here to save the world, you would struggle to believe that. But all of that's to say, maybe in the background of this story, you have this sense that Jesus, his mother and brother, are coming because they think he's crazy. Or it could be that it's not that it's really family conflict, but at the very least that they're trying to assert family privilege. Which is to say that Jesus is surrounded by these crowds, and he's teaching them, and he's healing them and casting out demons. And Mary and Joseph, or Mary and Jesus' brothers, expect Jesus to drop everything and come spend time with them, because they're his family, and they have that privilege. Or even if not drop everything, maybe they think that what's going to happen is that Jesus is going to, like, tell everyone to back up and invite his family to come sit in the front row, right, and give them this place of honor. That could be happening, too. But regardless, in one way or another, Jesus' family is coming to him, and their expectation is that they, as his biological family, come first. Here's what Jesus says. He answered them, 
My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. So that sounds harsh. And it would have sounded even harsher in the first century, where family bonds were much stronger than they are today. We should recognize that this is not the only encounter Jesus has with his families, and that he does love and respect them. One of the Ten Commandments is to honor your father and mother. We're told back in Luke 2, if you remember, after the incident with Jesus at the temple, where it says that Jesus went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. So he did live as a child in proper obedience to his family. And even as an adult, for example, we know that Jesus on the cross, seeing his mother, instructed one of his disciples to care for her out of concern for her provision after he died. So Jesus does not deny the importance of biological family. He's not rejecting it as a category. But what Jesus is doing is relativizing it. He's relativizing it by saying that there is another family that he is a part of that is actually more important, more central than this biological family. And that it is his commitments to that family that comes first. That's what he's saying when he says, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Jesus relativizes all of our earthly loves. That's part of what this story is meant to teach us, is simply to remind us that while there are good things in this world, and we can hold them as good things, all of them come second to Jesus and his kingdom if we are his followers. Later on in Luke, he's going to say this. He's going to say in Luke 14, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, Jesus isn't there saying, when he talks about hating your family and even your own life, he doesn't mean despising them. What he means is relativizing them. Again, he means saying that I am willing to look at Jesus and say, I, I care so much about being your follower and being a part of God's kingdom that even if it costs me my family, even if it costs me my life, that is a price that I will gladly pay. So Jesus relativizes those earthly loves, but he also promises us that as we follow him, we will find those good things in a new sense given to us. So in Matthew 19, Jesus says this. He says, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. So Jesus says, if you leave these things, you get eternal life, which is what we think, but you'll also, in another sense, get them back a hundredfold. What's he talking about there? Well, he's talking about the church. He's talking about the fact that as we are a part of Jesus' church, his community of followers, we actually receive brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers a hundred times what we have lost. The church is supposed to be that kind of community. Let me offer you a thought experiment. Imagine that you are facing real persecution. I don't just mean the way that like people in America gripe about it, but like your family is disowning you and cutting you off and your friends who aren't believers have all rejected you and refused to have anything to do with you and you've lost your job because of the fact that you've given your life to Jesus. Imagine you're facing that situation. Would you in that moment be able to say, it's worth it? It's worth it because of Jesus 
but it's also worth it because in Jesus, I am being given this new family that is worth the one that I've lost. I am gaining relationships with these people and they will care for me and support me emotionally, relationally, financially, all of that in a way that a hundredfold makes up for what I'm losing following Jesus. Would you be able to say that about your experience of the church? Would we be able as a church to say that to someone facing that kind of persecution? It's worth noting that that's not a hypothetical question for everyone, that that is exactly the question faced by Jesus's earliest followers. They did lose all of these things to follow him. Still, there are places in the world, if you live in China, if you live in certain Muslim countries, where if you make the decision to follow Jesus, it will cost you in that way. And even if we aren't facing that kind of extreme persecution, what all of that should tell us is that the church should be that kind of community. It should provide that kind of support and connection and care. And I don't think that we are in the United States. I mean, I don't even think that we fully are as Kish. And that, that, that last part, I'll just name this because part of what makes this sermon hard is that on the spectrum of churches as loving communities, I am always deeply encouraged by Kish. That on the whole, I think that we do a good job. There are a number of folks who are very relationally connected to each other. I've felt that kind of loving support as we walked through grief. And so it's not that we are utterly failing at this. But we're also definitely not at the place that Scripture envisions the church being. We still have a long way to go, and different members of the church have different places where they need to grow to become that kind of community. So that's the idea. The church is meant to be our true family, this new community that is so much deeper and more powerful than the sorts of earthly communities that we experience, that we can say it is worth it, that I, I, I am willing to lose all of these things in this world because what Jesus is giving me and the people of God is better. Now what I want to do for the rest of this morning is just very practically talk with you about how we can grow in that. Talk very practically about how we can be more like that community. And to do that, I really want to speak to three different groups of people. Three different groups, because we're at different places. I want to speak to each of you and give kind of a challenge in that regard. I want to speak to first if you are disconnected, second if you are somewhat connected, and third if you are well connected. All right? And all three of those groups, I want to say some kind of challenging stuff to, to grow into this. First of all, if you are disconnected. And by disconnected, what I mean is that you might agree in theory that this all sounds sort of fine, if a little romantic. And you, you know, you attend church on Sundays and kind of talk about the weather briefly with someone afterward. But you don't have any real sense of that community bond. Maybe you view the church just as a good, like, one-hour thing to do, sort of like exercising or something in the week. <clears throat> Maybe you view it just as sort of what's expected of you culturally, and so you show up, but you're disconnected from that sort of family life of the church. If that is you, I actually want to ask two different questions, because I think that you can be disconnected for two reasons that, that aren't the same. And so first of all, the first question I'd ask you to consider is, have you embraced the call to be a disciple of Jesus? 
Have you embraced the call to follow Jesus in a way that relativizes everything else in life? One of the reasons that we might not have that experience of the church is simply because we're not really having that experience of Jesus that brings us into his family. That all of this assumes, right, that, that you are willing to say, next to you, Jesus, I hate these worldly things that I have, my, my family and friends and house and job and hobbies and interests and comfort. I'm willing to count all those things as lost for the sake of knowing you. You cannot have the sort of new community of the church if you're just trying to live in the old community of the world. And so if that is you, if you're in that place where you really just haven't made that decision to be a follower of Jesus from your heart, well, first, I would love to just talk with you about that. Uh, you especially are someone that I would love to just sit and visit with. This is a place where it's okay to be in that place, where it's okay to process through those things. But I would love to just have coffee with you or whatever in COVID that we can do and spend some time talking about where you're at. But my challenge to you, if you're in that place, would be to simply say to you that in Scripture, there is no category for fence-sitters. There is no category for people who are, oh, I'm okay with Jesus. Or rather, there is a category, and it's not Christian. Now, I say that, and don't hear me say it's not okay to wrestle. It is great. And again, this is a place where if you are wrestling with the call to follow Jesus, if you're struggling with whether this is for you, I mean, I, I want to welcome you to that struggle. That is good and beautiful. But, but you need to be wrestling. If you're just sitting in the pew, just, well, this is all I'm really interested in, I would challenge you to wrestle with that call to follow Jesus. But that's not the only reason you can be disconnected. So let me ask another challenge, because I think plenty of you feel disconnected or are disconnected, but you are really trying to follow Jesus. And so if that is you, my challenge to you would be simply to ask, do you understand that the community of the church is not for you? The church is not for you. It's for God, and it's for his people together, and it's for the world. Let me explain. First, the church is ultimately for God. It is beautiful because he chooses to value it. Most of the images of the church are actually about God and not about us. That, that, that we together are the bride of Christ. That we together are his treasured possession. That we together are the temple house in which he dwells. And so all of that is to say the first purpose of the church is to bless God. And part of the way we, re we relate to the church is simply to say, my job is to help make this thing beautiful to present it to God. Secondly, the church is for the community of believers as a whole, together. That when scripture talks about why we engage with the church, it never really focuses on what we get out of it. Instead, it tends to focus on what we have to give each other. So if you think about Hebrews 10, for example, very famously, Hebrews 10, 24 says, And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So why do we meet together as God's people? It is to stir each other up. So I'm supposed to come and say, how can I stir these people that I'm meeting with up towards love and good deeds? And it is to encourage each other, to ask, how can I encourage these people in their walks with Jesus? 
It's about what I have to give to these people. And yes, they're giving things to me at the same time, but I'm not just in it for myself. And lastly, the church is for the world. Part of why we engage with the community of faith is because that is how God's mission in the world is accomplished. Jesus, before his crucifixion in John 17, prays that they, meaning the church, may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now, when people quote that, I think when they hear about us being one, they start immediately thinking about these questions of denominations and stuff, and that's, that's totally a fair discussion to have. But mainly what Jesus means is that we are living together in such loving fellowship that the world sees the loving fellowship within the Trinity, the loving fellowship that the Father and the Son have with each other, and that in our com- commitment to each other and connection with each other and relationships with each other, the world actually sees the gospel visibly proclaimed. That is what the church is for. So if you are disconnected from the church, I would just say, oftentimes, I think, the problem is you don't have that vision of the church. You might hear that and agree with it, but at heart, your vision of the church is as a consumer, that the purpose of the church is to kind of do some stuff for me, and I show up to get the stuff that it's supposed to do for me, and then I kind of just go on out into the world and live my life. So I challenge you, if you're in that place of disconnection, to examine your heart and wrestle with that understanding that the church is not for us, but it's for God and for the people around us and for the world. Next group, the somewhat connected. By that, I mean there are people who are engaged with the church, that they do have this sense that like, yeah, this is not just about me. Um, They are trying to engage with the body, but they don't have that sort of family connection. That still feels like something that you haven't experienced if you're in that group. If you're in that middle group, my challenge to you would be to find a small group of believers and seek to spend some spiritually intentional, time-intensive relationships with them. Find a small group of believers and seek to develop spiritually intentional, time-intensive relationships with them. Let's break that down. First, find a small group of believers which is to say we are all a family here. But if you try to have close family relationships with all 200-odd people that are connected with Kish, it ain't going to happen. Find two or three people, or a few couples if you're married, and try to develop relationships with them. And those relationships should be spiritually intentional, first of all. Which is to say, it's not wrong, even within the church, for our friendships to in part be based off of who we enjoy and have common interests with, right? If you are into, I don't know, if you're into the Packers or hunting or quilting or outer space or whatever, it's fine that you have connections within the church and friendships that start to form based on those shared interests. But you're not doing Christian community until you've pressed through those shared interests to talk instead about that deeper shared interest you have in Jesus Christ. To talk about your walk with him, to talk about your struggles with him, to encourage each other to grow in following him in practical and regular ways, to have spiritually intentional conversations. Here's a good test of that. In James 5.16, James says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. So do you have two or three people in the church that you could 
tell that you are struggling with a specific sin. That you could say, I am wrestling with this sin, brother. And that they would then come alongside you and support you and pray for you in that struggle. If you don't have that in a relationship, you need to have some spiritual intentionality with that person. And again, I'm not talking about everyone. I'm talking about like two people. And then third, those relationships also need to be time intensive. And I'm intentionally using a kind of negative word there. But here's the thing. In our world, on the one hand, we feel busier than ever. We feel like we're running around all the time, that we're really busy. But at the same time, we spend very little quality relational time with other people. Not everybody, but, but because of how busy we are, we, we don't spend... I don't, I don't just mean like, you know, you sit next to each other at a ballgame, but I mean like having conversations with each other, eating meals together and talking about what's going on in your lives. We spend very little time just being with people relationally. And that's an issue because that's the only way that deep friendships can form. Uh, scientists have tried to measure this, and I don't know, you know, <laughs> I never know what, what to make of these things, but according to this one scientific study, what they found is that it takes about... For, to have a close friendship with someone, to feel like we are good friends, it takes about 200 hours of quality time with that person. Now, yeah, you can be doing stuff together, right? But it still needs to be doing stuff where you're talking and getting to know each other. 200 hours. The issue with that is that if you say, you know what, I want to develop a relationship, so once a month I'm going to spend an hour and a half with someone having quality time, if you do that, it's still going to take you 11 years to feel like you're close friends. So if you want to pursue those relationships with those people, we have to encounter cultural ways. Think about how to regularly, weekly, in, in big chunks, spend time with that small group of people to develop those deep relationships. One note on all of that, of course, it is this reason that we have small groups here at Kish, And this is a hard season to talk about them because while we've left it up to the small groups that we have, um, you know, some, a, a few are still kind of eating, but we're not like open in, in a proper way right now. But, but two things about that. First of all, we will in the next few months, hopefully as COVID kind of shifts, be relaunching small groups. And I would strongly encourage you to think about being a part of one of those um, small groups here this later spring or whenever when we're able to do that, because that is part of why we're doing that is that can be an on-ramp. But you still have to engage past that. In the first place, even within a small group, our hope is that you'll develop a couple of relationships with people that transcend that and go deep in that time-intensive way. And you have to make the choice to be spiritually intentional in those small group settings. <clears throat> but that's it. The point for you, if you are in that somewhat connected group, is to take whatever practical steps are necessary to have a couple of people in the church that you can look at and say, that is my brother, that is my sister, and really mean it from the heart. Last group, what if you feel well-connected? There are some folks, I think, who hear what we've said, and they're able to up to now say, yeah, you know what? I am in that place. I am engaged with the church and trying to serve it, and I have a few friends that I have those deep spiritual relationships with. Well, here would be my challenge to you. Have you started viewing yourself as a spiritual parent in the church? Have you started viewing yourself as a spiritual parent? 
The Bible is full of family images of Scripture, and those images also connect to images of spiritual maturity. The idea is that we grow up from childhood into being a sort of young adult, and then ultimately into being a parent. The Apostle Paul regularly talks about himself as a parent. In 1 John, we have this, you know, we have parts of the church being addressed as the fathers of the church. And the point of that is to say that in many ways that growth in spiritual maturity also has to do with your growth in connection to the church. That in many ways, spiritually, children are those who are disconnected. Becoming a sort of spiritual young adult means coming into your own and developing those relationships with yourself. But the job of a parent is to reproduce and teach children how to grow. That's true in a family. The job of a parent is to have children and then teach them how to grow into young adults and ultimately into parents of their own. And that is the job of a spiritual parent in the church as well. One of the dangers that can happen is that you reach that kind of spiritual young adulthood. You reach that place of being decently connected in the church. You have a couple of those deep relationships. You feel like you're growing spiritually and a part of the family of God, and you just stop there. And the problem is that if you stop there, what we end up creating is a church where there's a group of people that feel well-fed and well-connected, and nobody else is being saved and coming to know Jesus, and nobody else is growing spiritually because they formed this sort of ball of relationships with each other and are not drawing other people in. Again, what we said is that parents reproduce themselves. And so if you are well-connected in the church, then your job from Jesus is to find people who are less well-connected and to help them grow. Let's talk practically about what that means. First of all, if you're wrestling with that call, it is so important to say up front, because I think this is the biggest thing that keeps us from doing this, parents do not have to be perfect. They are not perfect. In fact, one of the things you realize if you have biological kids is that you are far from perfect. They reveal your sin, if anything else. And you have no clue how to parent well when you go into it, right? I mean, I often think, like, why in the world did God give me kids 10 years ago, uh, you know, when I know so much more about parenting and life now? But look, being a parent does not mean that you are perfect, and that is just as true of being a spiritually parent, a spiritual parent, as it does of being a physical, biological one. That, that the question is not, am I so perfectly like Jesus that everyone can just sit at my feet and look up to me and ah? No, it's just, are you further along? Are you far enough along? Are you enough connected with the family of God that you can start investing in people who aren't? So very practically, being a spiritual parent means getting over that sort of perfectionism and recognizing the need and engaging with it. And also, very practically, being a spiritual parent, just like being a physical one, will often involve crossing generational lines. One of the biggest divides in our church, one of the biggest ways that we struggle, is that we can be very generationally segregated. And again, at Kish, we do a decent job at crossing those lines, but I still think there's a lot of room for us to grow there as well. That it is very needful for those who are more spiritually mature to be not just engaging with their peers, but to be engaged with the, the, the younger parts of the church as well. In fact, just, I mean, one of the things to think about is that in the church, right, the leaders of the church are called to be elders, and that is not the same thing as just being old, as we discussed a little while back when we talked about that idea of eldership from First Peter. But it is also true that the people who lead the church will often be 
uh, people of, of later generations, somewhat, somewhat older people, because they've just had more time to grow in Jesus. The church does not work if you are only hanging out with people your age as an elder, right? Part, part of your calling has to be to be relationally present and connected with all of the members of the church that you're shepherding. And that is an image of spiritual parenthood more broadly. We need to be crossing those lines. One last thought about that, though is that that is worth doing because spiritual parenthood, growing to that place of maturity where you are reproducing and helping other Christians to grow, that is actually the goal for all of us as followers of Jesus. It's not an optional calling. Jesus blesses us in order for us to be a blessing, 100% of the time. Jesus makes us disciples so that we would then make disciples. Jesus died and rose again so that we could come to him and then go to others and build up the church together. And spiritual parenthood on the ground is the way that we exercise that calling. So if you are in a place where you feel blessed and where you feel connected and where you are living as Jesus' disciple, I would encourage you to start thinking about what it means for you to start reproducing yourself. All right. So those are specific groups within the church, and I know some of those are challenging statements. But let's, as we close, just go back and remind ourselves of why we've been saying all of this. And I want to go back to that question of living in a culture where we're not a part of the majority culture, but I want to come at it from a little bit different angle. One of the great temptations of American Christians in this time that we live in is to think that what we need in order for Christianity to flourish is for the world to change, for the culture to be fixed, and to go back to some prior time. I don't know, to go back to the 1950s, to go back to this time when we're in the majority culture and there's prayer in schools and people easily speak the name of Jesus and have certain values in common with Scripture. Here's the thing about that. Christianity does not struggle because the world is the world. That's what that seems to assume, is that we need to like change the world and then we will stop struggling as Christians. But Christianity does not struggle because the world is the world. Jesus has no problem defeating the world. I mean, in Matthew 16, he tells Peter, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Christianity does not struggle because the world is the world. It struggles when the church is failing to be the church. Christianity struggles when the church is failing to be the church with all that scripture comes with that. And the problem is that while we were in the majority culture, while the world was friendlier to us, there were a lot of ways that we were failing to be the church, to be that sort of deep community, that family that Jesus calls us to be. And in many ways, what we have now, when our comfort in the world is in some ways being stripped away, is the opportunity to recognize how we failed as the church and to pursue that kind of meaningful community. Because when the church is being the church, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The world cannot overcome it. So let's commit ourselves to being a part of a community and family where we are more and more being the people of God that Jesus called us to be. Pray with me. Father, I am thankful, first of all, for all of the ways that I have had the privilege of experiencing the family of God in your church, at various churches, 
including here at Kish. I am grateful for those friends that I can look at and call brother and sister, and not just mean it in some abstract way, but really in our experience of life together. I am so grateful for those people. Jesus, I pray that you would help me and help each of us to more and more engage with the church as the family of God. I pray for those who are disconnected in our fellowship, that they might hear the call of discipleship and begin to engage. I pray for those who are somewhat connected, that you would be giving them and making clear to them who those people are that they can start to develop deeper relationships with. And I pray for those that are well-connected, that they would not hoard those blessings for themselves, but would embrace the call of the father or mother and seek to help others to become more and more a part of your family and grow more and more up into you. I pray this here at Kish, that we might be doing that and might be blessing our community around us as we do so. And I pray that for your church in the United States and in the world. Lord, we are the bride of Jesus Christ. We are your treasured possession. And my great hope is that you, who have begun a good work in us together, will carry it on to completion until the day when Jesus returns. I pray that you would be working that work now, Lord, helping us to be your kingdom people, your family, brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Amen.